Hi guys, uh, Russell here. Um, you know, I've been thinking about launching a fund. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the sort of pro labor versus pro capital markets. And what's been strange is what when we look at markets, you know, particularly over the last six or seven months, we have not seen the type of market action that I would have assumed. Um, and when I think about it, I've been thinking about it a lot, I think, you know, ultimately, we can only really get a bear market when the BOJ, that's Bank of Japan, finally ends QE. Uh, and what I mean by that is that in, a, in what is really a visibly pro-labor world, if we look at how everything is moving, uh, what politicians are doing, everything like that, it's definitely a pro-labor world. And yet the BOJ remains 100% in a sort of pro-capital policy type setting. And when that ends is when I think we can actually start to see a bear market, particularly among U.S. equities. So I'm going to explain that further uh, because I think it's going to really inform how I think about both uh, potential fund launch and also how, you know, how to be positioned. So, you know, in the sort of pro-labor world that I think we're in, I would, I've been pushing, saying the idea of a long GLD, short TLT, so this long gold, short long day treasury trade makes a lot of sense. You know, in late 2023, I thought we got what I was looking for, which was Fed goes dovish, long bonds should sell off and gold should rally, sort of both saying inflation's coming, which is what we got. And then we got sort of brutal reversal into the end of 2023. But the trend still looks okay. And I think that's correct. I think policies now are, particularly in the States, geared towards being pro-labor. Uh, I think also in China, just in a different way. Um now, the problem with the sort of pro-labor view is, as I, th- I saw as interest rates went up, financial and speculative assets would do poorly because as central banks tighten monetary policy, you'll see cash flow out of you know, speculative assets, so it becomes more difficult to raise. Now, in some cases, we have seen that, but in some areas, we haven't. Now, for example, one area that I look at in crypto, so I look at the market cap of Tether. That's a good measure for liquidity, I think. So we can see, you know, uh, post the sort of COVID bill, post COVID boom, a huge move in crypto was was you know very closely matched by a huge increase in the market cap of Tether, so sort of liquidity. And so, uh, you know, as interest rates went up and problems in the crypto space emerged, we saw market cap of Tether drop, but now it's surged again, even though you get five percent uh, at the Fed, you know, in cash. We're still seeing this surge. This is opposite of what I would expect. Likewise, NASDAQ now has fully recovered from its 2022 sell-off. S&P's in new all-time highs. Again, complete opposite of what I would have expected given where short-term rates have gone. Um, now, what I was saying is China has completely gone 100% pro-labor in my view, while Japan has stayed 100% pro-capital, particularly in sort of policies. And so, you know, what a lot of people have looked at or mentioned is this big break between the performance of the Nikkei and the HSCI. Now, for me, that makes a lot of sense in this type of world. You know, Japan has basically said, we don't care. We really don't care about workers. We're going to completely screw them over. Um, while the, the, the Chinese are being, you know what, we don't really care about big business. We're going to take care of workers. Now, you may have views on the benefits or negatives of either of that. I don't really care. It's not really important either. It's about making money. So, you know, for a while, I toyed with the idea that maybe just semiconductors were really driving the market, like a sort of new oil, and that we needed to adjust the pro-labor market for that. Um, That would explain some of the move in the NASDAQ and certainly some of the move in the Nikkei. 
but doesn't and but doesn't really explain you know cash going back in Teva or Bitcoin, and it doesn't really for me explain the superb performance of luxury. So look at you know LVMH is an, luxury was an area I would suspect which should struggle a lot. I think there's a lot of sort of speculative money held in luxury assets, and as as interest rates go up, I would expect this to do much more poorly. But we haven't really seen that. Luxury continues to hold up really well. So, you know, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, am I the new Dennis Garman? And sort of making fun of Garman. But Garman just has some other issues with market timing. But one thing I really agree with Garman, and if you go through his rules, and I've linked them in my post, so just click on the link here, is that simplicity breeds elegance. So if you've got a simple explanation for why assets are doing uh, and you got a complicated one, you should go with a simple one. Uh, and I think there is a simple explanation. I'm not sure you're going to like it. I'm not sure if I like it. It's sort of, I like it because it simplifies how I think, but I don't know if I really like what it means. Um, so if we look at the 1990s, late 1990s, which is most similar to, the Fed had high interest rates all through the 90s, especially the late 90s. Um, and even though that was the case, we still saw the dot-com bubble develop anyway, all right? But in late 1999, the Bank of Japan finally thought the Japanese economy was doing well enough for it to raise interest rates. So if you look at the sort of chart down below, you have got the BOJ, ECB, and uh, the BOJ and the Fed. We only have ECB from 98 because that's when the euro came into effect. But what you can see, if you look at the orange line, you can see in the mid-90s, the Federal Reserve raised rates, and because of the Asia financial crisis, other things, BOJ cut rates. And we then had the dot-com bubble develop. You know, everyone was like, this madness, how can this make sense? And then the sort of Japan tried to raise rates in 96, 97, the Asia financial crisis happened. They tried again in 2000, and then we had the dot-com bust. So whenever Japan tried to raise short-term rates, liquidity would get pulled from the market and a crisis would happen. And again, if we look at the sort of GFC, the BOJ, uh, the Fed raised rates quite early on, 2004, uh, ECB, you know, sort of 05, 06, and the Japanese sort of late 06. And when the Japanese raised rates, and not very by very much, is when you start to see problems, okay? So... If you follow this analysis, where we are now, the BOJ still with negative rates, it doesn't really matter what the Fed and the ECB are doing. We're still going to see speculative assets and financial assets do really well. And that is what we've seen. It also explains the weirdness in 2022 when the markets were very weak, the yen was also weak. So it's a sign that the Japanese are still there pumping liquidity into markets. So we move away from policy rates and look at balance sheets. The BOJ invented the whole balance sheet QE model. Um, and this is for me one of the reasons why it got quite confusing is when only the BOJ was doing it, okay, that made sense. We just look at the BOJ. With the Fed and the ECB joining the party, does that mean that we should care about all of them? What last year has proven to me is only the Japanese matter. Which sort of makes sense is only the Japanese are lenders, really. Europe is awash. US borrows money from anyone all the time. If you give them money, they will take it. So it's only the lender, which is Japan, that matters in its interest rate policies. And what we can see is BOJ did shrink its policy, its balance sheet a little bit in 22, and then quickly raised it up uh, as it maintained a super low, low policy. Um, even, even though, you know, so that Japan is the one that counts. 
Um, so, you know, for me, you know, a lot of what's happened over the last few years, particularly since 2016, means I should have been just caring about the BOJ more than anyone else. Um, and with the BOJ still being crazily dovish, like mega, mega dovish, assets will keep doing well. You know, and probably the most sort of distinctive uh, difference between the BOJ and let's say the ECB or the Federal Reserve is the size of its balance sheet. So, you know, if you look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet is contracted, look at the ECB balance sheet is contracted, BOJ balance sheet is back at all-time highs. It did contract in 2022 um, for a time, but then it expanded back up again. Uh, and that has been aligned, much more closely aligned with what markets have done. So I think that's quite a sort of strong signal that BOJ is the one that really counts. Um, and, you know, if we can look at, like, if we look at, uh, I'd be a bit surprised that the BOJ has stayed so loose, but, you know, if we look at uh, how the BOGA balance sheet has moved in the S&P 500, you know, it's given a pretty good signal uh, of weakness uh, and then strength that we've seen over the last couple of years. Now, the reason the BOJ balance sheet has uh, stayed very strong is that they've committed to this uh, yield curve control. So at the long end, they've committed to unlimited purchases to keep rates below a certain level. So as a pro-labor world has come over and inflation has, has come washing through, um, the BOJ is sort of co- committed to trying to keep yields suppressed uh, below this level of inflation. So a super dovish one. So when yields really did sell off, uh, you know, uh, in 2023, they came out and they started pushing liquidity back into the system. So weirdly, with the, the BOJ mindset, actually inflation is very good for financial assets because bond yields sell off and they put more money into the system. Now, what I find this, uh, I find their current sort of thinking a bit odd, to be honest with you, because if you look at you know Japanese cash earnings in dollar terms, they've collapsed uh, under BOJ policy down to Levels not seen since 1990 because the yen has been so weak and you have not seen an increase in, in, in wages in Japan to offset that. So they've really done a good job in making working people poor in Japan. Um, and, you know, also, as I mentioned before, food inflation in Japan has really taken off over the last you know, 10 years. Um, very different to what we saw in the 1990s and 2000s. So people would be seen on an everyday basis that their money is not going any further. So it's been surprising that the BOJ has been able to continue with this policy, even as everyday workers are seeing poorer and poorer. I think this is reflected in the fact that the current uh, LDP government is super, super unpopular, most unpopular government they've ever seen, because they're looking at this and going, well, I'm working hard, you know, everyone's employed, but we're actually getting poorer and poorer. It was so poor that now the Chinese come on holiday in Japan because it's cheaper here, which of course is madness. But that is the Japanese way. They often take policies to such extreme levels. That is madness. However, for me, I like it because, uh, you know, for me, I like this analysis and I like the implications. Uh, for me, a bear market in U.S. stocks would be extremely beneficial for the new fund I'm thinking of launching. We now sort of have a trigger for it. And the signs of that trigger, I think, are starting to come into place. Um, the BOJR talking about maybe raising rates this year. And given how bullish people are, I think this sets up a much more interesting situation. I do have to think about how to be invested uh, uh, for that, uh, but that'll be the subject of some future posts as well as talking about the BOJ in more detail. 
Hope that makes sense. Stay safe. We'll talk again soon. Ciao.